You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey gang, it's Dr. Alan Garfinkel, Rock Art Podcast, episode 108. We're bringing back the big man, Tirtha, Dr. Tirtha Mukahabadai from Guanajuato University. And it's a deep dive into the mysteries of what makes rock art tick. What is iconicity? What is shamanism, animism, totemism? And why is rock art so emotionally appealing? Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is episode 108, and we're talking to Dr. Tirtha Mukahabade, all the way from Guanajuato University in the wonderful country of Mexico. And we're going to talk about uh, iconicity, the uh, sacred, and the emotive potential of rock art. Doctor, are you there for us? Yes, I'm right here for you, Alan. Thank you once again for inviting me to talk on your podcast. And I'm really excited and look forward to talking to you. And this is the first time we get to see each other. We get a video with it. This is yes. exciting. Yeah. So we have a remarkable book coming out, don't we? Yes, of course. And, and, uh, it just got published. <laughs> and it's called The Iconicity of the Uto Aztecans. Wow. What a, what a mouthful. Yes. What the heck is iconicity? Yes, iconicity. It's an ambitious title, but we did. We have been working a long time on this project, and I guess we have defined iconicity well enough for the reader. We hope the reader finds the notion of iconicity interesting. The fact the icons, iconic uh, tokens, symbols, or codes, however you might want to call it, are carried through generations of uh, people who share the same linguistic and same cognitive uh, environment to negotiate. And it's continuous cultural, historical tradition of symbolism and expressions and, you know, self-appraisal. If I use the terms indexical semiotics, what does that mean? 
indexical semiotics. Right. You know, as, as we have discussed it already in the book at sufficient length, and the index is a far more basic terminology for the visual representation or visual sign. So if we begin with the question, the character of the sign, what does a sign mean? What does a visual symbol mean? We begin with that we begin discussing the index value, the indexical property of, of the visual sign. So it's the basic visual sign. The index refers to something concrete. For, for instance, it might be an animal form. Right, right. Yes. It's an emblem. It's a hallmark. It's a meaning of a meaning. Yes. There's something powerful here that's a symbol that you can grasp and yes. see and sense and taste. But it has a power greater than it has on the first appearance. There's much, much yes. more to it. Yeah. Right. Yes, we can put it that way, that, that the index is the portal. And we begin to understand the significance of the image through the index, through the indexical, upfront indexical form of the visual sign. But then we go try to go beyond that. We try to transcend the indexical properties in order to detect, to understand, to even institutionalize some of the meanings, the deeper cultural meanings that are inherent in that symbol, the way it used to communicate to people who made those representations on the rocks in the first place. Let's give our audience something concrete. We've, we've thrown a lot of words around. Give them some examples of, of some of the, the, uh, the icons that we might deal with when we're dealing with various cultures. Yes, or we can think of, to begin with, if we refer to some of the uh, Mesoamerican symbolism, one of the most important and most concrete symbols that comes to mind is that of the serpent, the snake. And the snake index is something which we have been dealing with for a long time now. The snake index is visible in not just in the very prominent and intelligible Aztec iconography. The snake index appears in very uh, rudimentary or vestigial outlier forms in the more fringe culture rock art specimens where you may just have a zigzagging line. You know, those wave formations in, in rock art on vessels, on clay pots, which would be used to store water in a very desiccated environment. And we know it also appears on textiles, on basketry, you know, as a diagonal or a triangle itself. In all those decorative and sacred and, you know, cultural paraphernalia that that defines a culture, the, the beliefs of that culture. And it's it's really great to see how that particular index might evolve into more concrete forms, like a basic snake index in the Uto Aztecan speaking peoples, in their visual expressions and their cultural artifacts, grows into the great... If we jump to yeah. the cultures of, of, let's say, the Desert West, yes, there's another symbol that I would call an indexical animal, and one that really interfingers for thousands upon thousands of years and it looks like a bighorn sheep. Am I correct? Of course. The bighorn sheep is, is one of the chief valorized indexical animal 
that we have. And, and it's just the sheep is the index animal. It's a zoomorphic index. It's an animal index, but it, can, it, it really transports us to the world of the Aztec, Uto, Aztecan symbolism, the American desert with, with symbolism, which suggests that the sheep is food, that the sheep is uh, sustenance, that the sheep can be divine because it's, it's, it's a form in which the divine comes to us. We, what we do is we continue to attribute significance to it. And this was a very crucial point to which I wanted to draw attention to in today's conversation, if you would allow me, Alan. The, the fact that the that, that, that supernatural attribution to visual indexes, this brings us to the, to the point where we begin to ask, what's the relationship between a visual index and the emotive symbolic meaning that the visual object represents? In other words, is can we explain this uh, indexical sign in terms of referentiality? We cannot do that because there are so many interspersed, non-referential elements in that visual index. It's a symbol of fertility. It's a symbol of giving. It's a symbol of provisions. And it is ultimately a, a symbol of of a faith in uh, of a belief that in in the universe in in nature that that there will there is a protector there is an there is an animal master so my my question would be really for myself for research personnel who have been investigating this notion of the relationship this not the notion but the relationship between an index and its symbolic value is whether there is a very concrete tether, a concrete uh, connection between the visual index and the symbol, can, in other, uh, let, let me try to clarify myself, make myself more clear. I believe, I'm now beginning to believe that, this, that the sacred feeling that is inherent in a visual index is not necessarily physically or manifestly related to the visual symbol to the visual index at all. This is why I say this is because when you consider the human-like gods, the anthropomorphs and the providers and and the pregnant uh, bighorn sheep, for example, it's easier to understand what the symbol ultimately represents, a divinity, a provider uh, spirit. But when it comes to the geometricals, they are more simpler. They're simpler, they're more elemental, they're scarce, they're minimalist. And the only reason that these geometrical symbols, they may be more complex, as in sand paintings, for example, uh, more meaningful. But yes. even when they appear on the rock, they continue to create that experience of wonder and beauty and something, something very sacred, even if we are not conditioned, we feel that it's, 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 it creates a kind of, a very specific kind of experience for us in that setting. There's something very mysterious and compelling about yes. the image. Sometimes we can't put our finger on it. Exactly. We don't know exactly why we're feeling the way we're feeling, but we do right. know there's, there's something intense there. There's a yes. tug. It's a yes. tether. It's yes. a, how do, you, how do you put this? It's some sort of a, 
there's an unction that's that's a good word mm-hmm. that, that that is calling us to a deeper understanding of what yeah. this symbol means and we i think we get a feeling that yes. it's something something grander than ourselves and has a transcendental quality how's that yes very very well said uh, alan you've just been able to describe for me for example when the experience that we have when we look at these uh, matte patterns, the matte patterns, for example, and there are matte patterns, the chakras, the mandalas, the, however we, way we call it, and all this vast spread of religions across the world from, from Central Asia to Siberia and, and into consistent with a prehistoric uh, migration with, of the haplogroups, as they have been described in the literature, that there is this uh, common ground of belief and this common sense of, of, of creating beauty out of simple patterns, simple uh, circles and geometrical shapes, and they're all there for our contemplation. Isn't it something very uh, strange and wonderful at the same time and very difficult to explain? Yet there's something else implied. Yes. And there's something else implied is when you have a circle, when yeah. you have a net, a network, when you have some sort of a, a conduit, it's leading right. somewhere. It's entwining you. It's bringing you into another uh, level of, of uh, environment or thinking or, or some, some, yeah, some, some sort of other, it's, it's got an otherworldly feeling to it. Yes. I mean, these are attractors. These are great attractors, and and we visit rock art sites, and we and we have a decorative uh, uh, chakra in our home and on the wall, and uh, we don't know why, but but they have uh, a certain effect on us. Yeah, why do people to this very yes. day mm-hmm. buy those little spider things that are the Indian things that 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 they it's it's got a web yes. or a nest, and they hang it in their car. Why? Right. Yes. It's it's not just the shape of it. It's not just the the way it looks, but it makes us look at itself at, in a way which is different. You know, this is why we could call this this phenomenon in the human mind the rock art way of seeing things. Right. You said you called it the archaeology of emotions. Yes. Yes which was surprising. I'd never heard those terms joined in, in, in ever. So that was really quite, quite striking, the archaeology right. of, of emotions. And so I think I mentioned this to, to Chris Webster mm-hmm. when, I mm-hmm. had, when, I, when he was interviewing me uh, for my last discussion with him. Mm-hmm. And I said that there are these images on rocks that appear to be these figures that are leaping or growing or somehow coming out of cracks in the rocks, right? Right. And they're large. And they're obviously something of importance. They're yes. beautiful. They're aesthetically pleasing. Yes. And they, they, they make you feel contented. They make you feel yes. whole. Pleasant. Yes. Yes. They aesthetically make you feel, pleasing. Yes. You say, That's really beautiful. That's really interesting. Someone yes. did a beautiful job of, of ensconcing that image in just yes. the right way on that. And what do we see off to the left, just under that, is a very small creature with their hands 
like this opening to the sky in a right. supplicant posture. Well, it's right. obvious, obviously that's, that's explaining or further explicating or, or elucidating what's going on here. That little being is, yes. is, entre- is entreating this larger right. Im- image for help, for healing, for mm-hmm. blessings, for yes. reassurance, all those things that we want as human beings. Does right. that make any sense? Oh, yes. That's, that's where it leads to. I mean, so we are not just dealing with an index. We are dealing with an animated and interanimated property within that index, which is affecting us in a very strange way. And it, it might even be that this, it is, it is this very primordial sense of uh, someone, not just something, but and not just some level of uh, experience that we would, call it that there is someone coming there and you know taking the seat yes. and, and 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 then offering its uh, deep bonding deep bond of friendship to us yes that's a good that's that's a good that's a good juncture to yeah. to uh, catch on the flip-flop gang pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, gang. This is uh, segment two of the Rock Art Podcast with uh, Tirtha Mukahabadai. And we're talking about indexical thinking. We're talking about semiotics. We're talking about the way of seeing and the way of understanding rock art and dealing with the concept of iconicity. Tirtha, why don't we continue there? Yes, the rock art, like any other great art in different contexts, and humanity has continued to be continue to produce rock artists in all ages of art, I guess, if we can call it that way. And, and you know, the phrase that we were just tossing around was the rock art way of seeing. And, and it's of uh, immense significance because the rock art way of, of seeing prompts us to question the positivist way of looking at things and even the whole Western notion of, of of seeing things and the discourse that we have associated with with the with the appreciation of arts uh, for several centuries now. I mean, it's not wrong. It's it's just a different way of looking at things, and this is this is important because we de-Westernize, we we de-Eurocentricize ourselves, we de 
if we depositivize ourselves in order to to expect, in order to uh, immerse ourselves. It's an, it's, it's an immersive practice. When you look at the world in the way the, the Native Americans have been looking at this at nature for thousands of years, at the way the Siberian shamans would would look at uh, would look at nature, would look at human destiny. What we're talking about is an indigenous pers- perspectivism. We're talking about dismantling yes. a linear way of thinking or a cart- Cartesian way of thinking. Yes, and what one that's more holistic, absolutely one that's more embracing in yes. the energies of the universe and somehow cosmically entwining yes. with the rock art. And under, yes. understanding the world yes. in a much more conceptual, unified, relationship-oriented fashion. How's that? Yes, it's uh, it's it's all that, and it's more graceful. It's more it it makes you more humble. It makes you more receptive. It it makes you more of a human being rather than more of a of a warrior. If we think about it from the Judeo-Christian ethic, and you look at things scripturally, it says that we're supposed to be masters of the universe. We're supposed to be we're supposed to own the resources yes. and use them and and engineer things for our own benefit. Yes, yes, it's it's basically a humanist idea. Right, that is contradictory to a indigenous mm-hmm. perspective. Correct. Yes, that's an uh, it's an alternative, and you know. There are various ways and methods. There, there are sciences associated with this position, with this way of seeing things, and the integrity of the process. That the visual object, the art object, the sacred object, it's uh, the way we look at uh, the world, we look at deeper levels of being. We, we could call it for the moment. The, the plants that the that the that nature flowers that the uh, hallucinogenic and theogenic properties of plants and flowers and leaves and this day and they, 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 they could influence us they could induce in us those visions I mean not necessarily because hallucinogens can produce very extremely strange, otherworldly, alternated uh, states of consciousness. But the sacred art is not merely about an altered states of consciousness. And I think even the discussion in, in archaeology, which was you know, founded in a, in a sense by, by the theorists on uh, entoptics and phosphenes and you know, the form constants of rock art, as they used to call it, even then, this, this, the, the, the argument falls apart and disintegrates when we consider the fact that we are not talking just about an impression, a visual impression, an optical illusion. We are talking about something emotive. We are talking about something that moves us and something that reassures us. And, and therefore, this invites us to think of a very different kind of psychology than that uh, of the positivist. Uh, psychological literatures. So, what about uh, the rock art way of seeing things? Then, the rock art way of seeing things not 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 only explains the way we look at rock art and rock art looks at us. It helps us to understand. It helps us to appreciate to dig into the deep time religious consciousness that might have attended 
the evolution of post-paleolithic man. Absolutely. That's that you've hit the nail on the head, uh, Tirtha, because you can yes. see that in the rock art. Rock art speaks speaks to yes. those that want to listen or ask better and better questions. And it sh- and it shows us right. the values, the ethics, the the salient elements of meaning that indigenous people had about the world. But that's exactly how when they visit their sacred spaces that the gods, they come to bless them. They come to give them their, all, the, all their the fruits, the products, the abundance, the bring with them. And this is what we repeatedly see in, in all the great religions. In Japan, you have to walk up a hill in order to come and stand you have to purify yourself, wash your, wash your hands, wash your feet, your face, and then come and stand in front of that, uh, that kami, that spirit, God, who is there for you. And he, he and uh, this, this God will then listen to your prayers. It's, it's this is exactly the same thing that's happening in, in the rock art clusters for the, these Native American peoples in their sacred baskets. This will be guiding. This will be. Uh, controlling, conditioning, the way we store our grain, the way we hold water, the way we serve food, uh, the, the sense of community. Everything changes when you look at life and your relationship to another human being, to the others, to, to every person, when you're looking at it with the eyes of, of the rock art shaman. When you're looking at it with the with the eyes of God, when you're looking at it as a, as as a deity, yes, and exactly. you're, you're asking, "What do you want of me, God? What do you want of me, deity? What what yes. are you trying to communicate? Yes. How am I supposed to conduct my affairs, and how will this affect me and my family as I try to live an ethical, yes. moral life yes. that uh, reimburses yes. you for what you've given me when I go and kill an animal." you will show me what to do so I can show respect and acknowledge when I, when I'm able to harvest, when I see the rain and the rain comes and I I thank you for that blessing. The DT, the rock art, you know, the Nahuatl word for it, uh, since we are closer to this context, the Nahuatl word for the divine spirit is like T-E-O-T-L, Teotl. Teotl, yes, Teotl, in, in my Anglophone uh, pronunciation, it's more like Teotl. So the Teotl is a very interesting kind of presence. So again, going back to or regressing to this idea of the visual index, the Teotl of the index, if we were to call it that, it does not exercise or impose its control over you. It's, it's more like a mendicant. It's more like expecting you to help the Teotl out by receiving the Teotl, giving him a space in your heart or in your mind. And that changes the perspective of any uh, conversation on transcendent presences and the symbolism of, of religions and uh, 
it's not an, a, a very fiery, fierce, exacting. It's like a, it's the commandments. Now, let, let's think of the commandments. The commandments may be very strict on you, but the idea that, that God is love, that God uh, is wherever there is bonding, friendship, love, the, the texture of culture itself. And the texture of culture itself takes on a very different kind of meaning and perspective when we are in union with the presence of these deities and spirits who are part of ourselves, who are not there in a space which is very far away and very transcendent and very heroic. It's, 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 a fa- it's within the fabric of our lives. This is exactly why the rock art visual index. These deities, instead of being distant, are close. And, yes, and, they're part and, of they, 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 they come to the basket. They're on they the rocks. You can touch them. You can feel them. They're in the baskets. Yes. They're on the textiles. They're yes. in the sky. They're on the earth. What this leads to, therefore, is to question in what phase of human evolution did this sense of the presence of deific entities arise? In what stage of evolution? And I have been looking at it in, in you know, with some interest. It's a vast subject, and you need an entire tome of literature to deal with how humans, if they did migrate out of Africa. If the out, if you, if you subscribe to the out of Africa theory, the first migrations of the LMN haplogroups towards uh, towards Asia, to the Near East and the Caspian Sea and the Mediterranean, and then towards more towards the east, and then from there these different different stratas of civilizations that have come into being following these migrations. The presence of Neanderthals 110,000 years before present, the, uh, the presence of Neanderthals, the intermixture possible or not, it's uh, in anthropology, there's no real evidence of an intermixture of Homo sapiens with Homo neanderthalis. But there is evidence of the use of fire there is uh, from and carbon dated uh, locations of community feasts, communal feasts, getting together, feasting. The idea of food, eating together, sharing, contentment, sitting around the fire or a hearth, these would have to be integral to the phases in which the notion of a provider, a protector, Animal master, all, all, all the all uh, the above, yes. Uh, spirit of the rains. But the oldest rock art we're now finding can be one hundred ten thousand years old, right? With those little scrapes on the on the rocks, uh, where they've got curvilinear meanders and other things like that in caves. Yes, uh, of which we do not really understand much, you know. Then we think about Neanderthals and those those red blotches. Yes. And the, the scrapes that are on those big, huge hunks of red hematite. Yes. Yeah. And, and the bones and yeah. the uh, fossil records. Uh, so, so this might be pointing to a period before the Homo neanderthalus and the Homo sapiens 
and the Homo australopithecine when when the humans like 200 300,000 years before present when the bipedal prehensile enabled uh, yeah. humans the, were really the, beginning the, the to the seeds are being sowed of so, of something greater yeah. than their individual self and let's yes. leave it let's leave it there see you on the flip-flop gang for the next segment pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're back, gang. This is your Rock Art Podcast. And we're talking about the meaning of meanings. We're talking about rock art. And it's the archaeology of emotions, the iconicity, and dealing with how does the indigenous person think and what do these images on stone possibly communicate? What's their emotional value and what, what can we see and feel and set from trying to understand them? Dr. Tirtha, you're back? Yes. Talk about some of the basic elements of religion that anthropologists have tried to suss out from shamanism, animism, totemism, these are various uh, forms of the same human intuitiveness. It's an intuitive way of, you know, looking, intuitive methodology, intuitive epistemology. All the epistemes are right there. Animism is at the heart of some of this. Yes. And we're thinking about sort of this indigenous ontology. Right. This indigenous way of thinking. Right. It's, a, it's an animistic way of thinking. What do we mean by that? What we mean, and maybe now we would have to take our departure with, with the kind permission of more positivistically inclined thinkers on this point. What we mean by animistic intuition is that the human uh, being had always had the ability to intuit into the presence of, of a master spirit and a friend and the giver, this intuition of the other, the intuition of that, you know, that kami, that Shintoistic kami, the, the Chiang, as the Chinese Confucians would say it, the Deva, as the, as the Hindu and the Buddhist, the Bodhisattvas, all the Buddhas, the Buddhas are all there on, you know, they are in the bonsai, they're in the springs, they're in heaven, and in the hearts of man and woman. This intuitiveness, if we call this a kind of in, intuitive process. You know, interestingly, even clinical psychology is uh, trying to cope up with this massive faith in the supernatural attributes, which are completely illogical, irrational, and which do not have any basis in, uh, in when, when we try to analyze how uh, the, the, the structure of human experience. But the very, very unexpected element in this question, uh, this un, un, what, is, what is very unexpected and surprising is that 
this intuitiveness into the presence of a supernatural entity with supernatural attributes may have a positive effect on well-being and human happiness. And it's not necessarily creating a crisis or anxiety. No, it's not, not, not at all. Ab- absolutely not. Yes. And in fact, in fact, what they've found is, is often people who have deep-seated psychological or physiological or other problems with depression or anxiety or other just overwhelming circumstances, yes. when they provide them with altered states of consciousness using some sort of a, a medicant of sorts, yes, where they grasp and see and sense the supernatural, Mm-hmm. It makes them happy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it gives them it gives them something yes. to live for. It shows them another side of the universe. Yes, absolutely fascinating how the ancient civilizations or ancient peoples have been tapping into the resources of herbs and you know psilocybin, the ayahuasca, the the peyote, the datura. And even independent of these these other psychotropic entities, yes. right? We get there from dancing. We get yes. there from singing. We get there from staying up for days on end and, and drumming yes. and humming. And we induce a state of ecstasy. Yes, of happiness, of sharing uh, the communal life and... Uh, this is such a wonderful aspect of human existence, and you don't need the psilocybin. You don't need the. No. You don't need them, but but you could use them. You could sure. also use them, sure. and uh, even even you know chemical opioids will create a, a much tougher crisis for societies. So there's no reason why we should castigate the practice of hallucinogenic, entheogenic substance uses and uh, why the law should not absorb these elements for a better life and for, and for medicinal uses. It's, it's more me- medicinal. It's more medicinal. I mean, these are, of course, these are well-known facts, but the one thing that we cannot afford to lose sight of in this process is the uh, emotive core, the core of grace, the core of, of being attuned with supernatural attributes or entities who are not distant, but who are, who are so close to the texture of our lives. A personal connection. Yes. A supernatural connection, touching, feeling, communicating the, yes. the, the essence, feeling a connection and, and some sort of a, a, t- a tether to those beings yes. that will allow allow one to be reassured of some sort of uh, largesse, right? The attitudes that these uh, beliefs provoke are very redeeming. They do not provoke uh, competition, jealousy, fear, and uh, you know, exclusion. Right, but. That's the reason why the earth has been at the center of, of human right. uh, groups and, you know, this bonding. So then this gets us to animism. 
Yes. We're moving up to the next realm to shamanism. And then yes. we have a we have an intermediary, a leader. Yes. yes. That spends his or her life sort of becoming yes. a a liaison between the supernatural and the natural. Who is on the who's intermediary. We could call this this liaison, this uh intermediary who is uh, either gifted with or who is working on behalf of you to connect you to those entities, making it easier. And that's not like the the priestly control. Um, I, I hate to call it that, but the, the fascist priestly cultures are not the same as the shamanic doctors, healers of the indigenous peoples who, exactly. who, who are leading a, a more a less sedentary but also more hunter-gatherer form of uh, whatever simpler more, more connected so, the, so they're not building houses there, there are phases in this process of human prehistory where where humans are moving around on animals or just uh, you know moving from place to place in search of pastures and uh, they're carrying their beliefs with them. So with this shamanistic legacy, you get these individuals who bring down the rain or speak to yes. the ancestors. Yes. Or they take the ancestral spirits and yes. they speak to those that are living. Yes. And uh, provide them with a vehicle for their uh, angst and concerns and sorrow. And they, uh, they transform that, that time, yes. that period to allow them to vent and, and uh, grieve and deal with their problems and, and feel better about themselves afterwards. They have dedicated their entire lives to just being a vehicle, you know, a receptor, a channel yeah. for, for these uh, spirits. And They're the native doctors and the, yes. and the na- native psychologists yes. and psychiatrists. Right. Yeah. Yes. And that's the, the shaman is... You know, uh, if we again, if you look at it behaviorally, the shaman is is dedicated. He, he or she travels, goes through hardships, accepts hardships willingly. is a is an ascetic figure. Yes. He, yes. Is, remains in isolation in order to come back, and so that others can reintegrate with that uh, structure of perceptions. And so this is a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, and the, 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 the shaman can thus, you know, we are, we are really uh, moving or transitioning to, to, to religious themes, to studies and studies yeah. of religious transcendental nature. Now, now mo- moving up to the highest level, we get to totemism. Now, in totemism, what happens uh, occasionally is that it comes full circle because they have a indexical animal, an iconic entity yes. that, that becomes their totem that they may see as some sort of an ancestral deity or animal human figure that they believe that they are descended from yes you have composite forms as well you have an animal human mixture you have mixed forms but but 
to come back to your main point, Alan, even in this kind of shamanic, totemic, we can call it assignment, we are assigning a, an attribute, a spiritual personality or identity to an object. Yes. In everything that the, the shamanic religions, the indigenous and original religions of the world have been doing, the reference point is the human ability to view an image of itself with more heightened uh, spiritual and supernatural attributes. Someone who is an, like me, but who is also not me, but not self, not not just as I am, but who is like me and who understands me and who is my friend. This elemental friend mate deity. This is the contribution of the ancient religions. This is the contribution to the religions of the world. And it kind of stagnates with, uh, you may say, for a moment, for a more unambitious way of conducting yourself. It may lead to a denial of technology, but no, technology, technology is integral to this to this way of saying things. Because when you're using an atlatl to hunt, when you're killing an animal in a certain way, so as not to give it pain and to, to maximize the nutritive value of this gift that you have received from nature, these are integral to this worldview. And they do not make you anti-technology. They make you use technology in a way in which you, you begin to see the presence of the deity in the technological equipment itself. And believe me, in this place called Milpa Alta, close to Mexico City, I met this artist who has now, whose works have been exhibited in London and the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and who has not been paid for exhibiting, of course, because he was not quote-unquote famous, but he is like a kind of Nahuatl-speaking shaman, and he got a graduate degree in engineering from, from Sheffield, England, and now he uses these small circuits, Arduinos and sensors, actuators, to make puppets of Quetzalcoatl, the snake did. And wow. Yeah, Palma. His name is Ferdin Palma, and he is, you can uh -huh. see him. You can look him up on YouTube. But what Palma does, what Palma told me, we were just talking for that entire afternoon over a couple of beers, and Palma was telling me that the sensors in, in these electronic puppets, they do not react in the same way on all occasions in all instances of exhibitions. And he says this from that same shamanic perspective. Wow. That is when, when the circuit board, the, the Arduino sensor, is reacting to the environment in a way in which it seems that, that there is a little a total spirit <laughs> hidden. <laughs> hidden in the sensor. Got Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to, to quit. Okay, gang, there'll be more coming. God bless you. Th thanks for listening. Thank you, Tirtha. And see you on the flip-flop, gang. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.